good to see all of you today, and I hope as you came to worship the Lord today that you brought your copy of God's Word. I invite your attention to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. The sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, we're following, of course, the theme of spiritual warfare. And uh, today's message, which is entitled The Breastplate of Righteousness, is another message that um, talks about are being dressed in the spiritual armor that God provides for us in this battle in which we are involved. And I'm going to begin with chapter six of Ephesians and uh, uh, read just two or three verses of scripture and uh, then share with you some thoughts regarding the importance of having on the breastplate of righteousness. So Ephesians chapter six, beginning with verse 10. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, to underscore things that we've looked at it before, but go back up to verse 10 and I'll point out to you and remind you that it is not in your strength or in your might uh, that you can withstand the fiery schemes of the devil or the fiery darts of the devil, but it's the strength of the Lord and the, uh, the might of the Lord. So the battle is the Lord's, and he is the one who gives you the strength. You're going to be tempted, you are going to be and are involved in spiritual warfare, uh, but the Lord is with you, and he will give you the strength that you need to withstand the temptations and to protect yourself against the attacks of the devil Notice in verse 11 that he says, put on the full armor of God. We're taking each piece of the armor one by one, but he is saying that we are to take all the, of the pieces of the armor. It's very important that we put on every single piece of it and that we put on it every day because it is a daily battle that we are involved in. Notice also in verse 12, he's saying that our battle is not flesh and blood, that is, it's not the people. Now sometimes the people will use, the Lord will use people, maybe even use you against somebody else. But ultimately behind all the difficulties, the battles, the hardships, the conflicts that we are involved in, while people may be a part of that, it is the devil who is behind all of it. And so we are fighting against principalities, powers, rulers of the world of spiritual darkness in heavenly places. And so we are, our, our, our enemy is invisible, but very, very present and very, very powerful. And therefore we are to put on the full armor of God and that we are to put on each piece every single day in which we are involved. We're talking today about the importance of having on the breastplate of righteousness and of course the breastplate would be that part of the Roman soldier that protected uh, his torso, uh, uh, his chest, uh, especially his heart, 
his lungs, his intestines. It would be very important for him to have this on because if he were in battle, for him to be struck in any part of his uh, upper body, the, especially the chest where the heart is or the lungs or the intestines or to be struck with a sword in those areas would certainly would mean imminent death, if not immediate death. And so it would be vital for them to put on that piece of armor. Uh, we perhaps do not call it armor today, but uh, you talk to a law enforcement officer, uh, he'll tell you how important it is for him to have on a bulletproof vest. Uh, bulletproof vests have saved many a law enforcement officer uh, against a bullet or some other type of attack that they have been confronted with or are involved in. So the breastplate or the bulletproof vest for the individual was extremely important. There's an example in the Old Testament of an individual who, although he had on his armor, his chest, uh, he was nonetheless wounded. And I'm talking about Ahab in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us in the book of Ahab, uh, chapter 16 in 1 Kings, not the book of Ahab, but 1 Kings chapter 16 about Ahab. The Bible says in chapter 16 of 1 Kings and verse 30 that he was evil and uh, was more wicked than all of the previous kings put together. And the day came for him to be in a battle. He joined another king again at battle and they decided to disguise themselves. And Ahab disguised himself uh, other than the king, the royal uh, armor that he would have on so that they wouldn't spot him. And so when the enemy came against them, uh, they thought the other king was Ahab and they were going to do battle with him. When they approached him, he revealed that he was not Ahab. And so uh, they gave up and uh, went back. And I want to read in 1 Kings chapter 21 what happened to Ahab. In 1 Kings chapter, excuse me, chapter 22, it says in verse, uh, 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 34. Uh, verse 33 says, when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans and died at evening and the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset saying every man in his city, every man to his own country. And so the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves there, that is in the river or the pool of Samaria, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke. So the Lord had told him that he was going to die and that he was going to die in battle. And how it all came about was he had on his armor, but here's this soldier and he, with the rest of his troops, begins to leave and he just takes his bow and arrow and just in random pulls it out and lets it go. And the arrow went right into the heart and the body of Ahab. And as I've just read to you, he eventually bled to death and the dogs came and licked up the blood uh, from the chariot as it was being washed out. So it's extremely important for one to have on his armor, especially in the spiritual battle. So in your bulletin today, I have an outline that we'll follow as we touch on some spiritual truths that will help us to understand why 
the breastplate of righteousness is important and why we should make sure that every day we wear the full armor of the Lord. There are four things that I want to share with you about the importance of having on your breastplate of righteousness. And the first idea is the requirement for it. Why do we need to have on the breastplate of righteousness? And the reason for it is, of course, that we are all sinners. And uh, we sometimes think that we're okay the way we are. And uh, we gather our self-righteousness around us. But the very title itself tells us the weakness of it. It's self-righteousness. There is no good thing about us that meets the requirements of the Lord. And the Bible tells us that if we were to gather our own righteousness around ourselves, it would be as filthy rags in the eyes of God. So there is nothing that you can do or nothing that you are apart from the grace of Almighty God that can meet the requirements and expectations that God puts on you in the area of righteousness. And so it's not our righteousness that we can use in the battle and be accepted in before the Lord, but it is the righteousness of Christ that comes to us. And of course, as I've said, we've all sinned, and I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, the third chapter of the book of Romans. And I want to share with you some things here about our weakness and our unrighteousness and that we are all totally inadequate uh, to meet the righteous requirements that God demands because of our sinful condition. So Romans chapter 3, and I want us to look at it, if you would please. Romans chapter 3, I want to begin with verse 9. Romans 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now notice the terms there, Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. And so the Bible identifies only two uh, nationalities or races of people in the world. If you're either Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek, if you're not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. And I'm assuming that all of us here today are Gentiles. You are a Gentile. So uh, he is using this term Jews and Gentiles or Greeks to say that every single person in the entire world uh, is uh, guilty of sin and therefore un, uh, unqualified and unable to meet the requirements of the Lord. And then notice in verse uh, nine, he goes on. In verse, uh, he says that all uh, are under sin. Notice verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. All have turned aside and together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now notice for reputation, re reputation's sake, uh, in verse 10, none, not even one. Verse 11, none, none. And then in verse 12, there is none who does good. There is not even one. No, not one. Not a single person in the world, in the past, present, or future, meets the requirements that God demands and expects when it comes to righteousness. No, not one, not even one. And then beginning with verse 13, he, he kind of takes up the human being and puts him under an x-ray and shows what's in his heart, what's beneath the outward appearance of that individual. 
And so in verse 13, he talks about the throat. Their throat is an open grave. So uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a grave where maybe it's, it's been covered up for a long time, uh, but uh, have to dig up a body, exhume a body, and, and a body decays. Uh, you know, if you die and your body is not embalmed, the law requires that you be buried within 24 hours because your body begins immediately to decay. And in a very short period of time, your body begins to have an odor about it, a smell about it. You remember when uh, Lazarus died and the Lord went his, with his disciples to where Lazarus had been buried and Jesus said, remove the stone, they objected. They said, Lord, he's been dead four days. Uh, they didn't embalm the average person in those days. And so the Bible says, Lord, he'd been buried for four days. He smells, he stinks, there's an odor there. Well, uh, Paul takes that image and he says, your, your throat is like an open grave, an open sepulcher. It's not the grave itself or the sepulcher itself that smells, it's the rottenness on the inside of the body. And he is saying that your soul down on the inside is rotten. And when you open your mouth, if you're not saved and you, you just spew out all of these things, it stinks. Your message stinks. Your throat is like an open sepulcher. It smells if you're not saved because you use all kinds of words that you shouldn't that defile. So tongue, uh, throats are full of corruption. Their throat is an open grave or an open sepulcher. Not only their throats, but their tongues. Look at it in verse 13. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. They keep deceiving. So uh, it's a habit of lifestyle. Notice the terms, they keep deceiving. So this is not something that occurs just here and now, every once in a while. But it's their habit. It's their lifestyle. They deceive other people with their tongues. And then notice also he says in verse 13, the poison of asp is under their lips. Now I've read that uh, where uh, an asp, which is one of if not the most poisonous serpent in existence that we know about, but that the, the serpent known as the asp uh, has um, fangs, of course, like all snakes do have in their mouths, but I'm told that they have a, a, a sack of poison that is hidden under their lips. And when the asp raises its head to start to strike, those fangs automatically drop out and that sack drops down. And when he strikes, he injects the poison through his fangs into its victim. And so now he is saying when you open your mouth, if your mouth is not controlled by the Lord, it spews out poison. And it poisons you, it poisons the people that you're talking about. And he says, the poison of asp is under their lips. Notice verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So uh, they uh, spew out all of these things with their mouths. So uh, these verses talk about your mouth and your tongue and your speech. Uh, you know, you can, you can be around a person for a very short period of time and tell by the way they talk whether or not they know the Lord or whether or not their tongue or their mouths is controlled by the Lord, by the words that come out of their mouth. And Jesus tells us over in the New Testament that what comes out of the mouth is simply an evidence 
of what's down on the inside. Just like when you put a bucket down in a well, what's in the bottom of the well comes up in the bucket. And so out of the uh, heart comes out all of these evil things that Jesus talks about in Matthew's gospel. So their throats and their tongues and their lips and their mouths are full of corruption. But then notice also in verse 15, beginning with verse 15, he talks about their conduct. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. I mean, there's hardly a day that goes by now. Doesn't seem like in Chicago or New York or out in Los Angeles or some other place, somebody has a, uh, been killed by a drive-by shooting. Or like the lady who attempted to uh, you know, break into the White House over this, this past week. Uh, whatever voices that she was hearing and everything. And, but we, we see innocent children, uh, drive-by shooters that just, just, shoot, just shoot to be shooting whom, and destroying whomever they can. And, and then murders, you know, some of the cities like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles, but also Nacogdoches. People get killed here, murdered. There's a difference between killing and murder. If you're a soldier and you're involved in a battle and at war, that's killing. That's one thing. The Ten Commandments that says thou shalt not kill literally means thou shalt not murder. There's a difference between killing and murder. When you just go out and randomly shoot somebody and kill somebody, that's murder. And that's what he's talking about here. Their, their feet runs to mischief. They cause trouble and anxiety and crimes and they kill each other. We're killing each other on the streets of our city. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they've not known. But then notice in 18, he talks about their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so with the eyes today, we see all kinds of vile, uh, immoral things that go on in the world today. And, and the reason why people kill and steal and murder and, and deceive and do all of these things uh, is because they have no fear of God. That's why they do it. They have no fear of God. The Bible tells us in the book of Judges, chapter 17 and verse 6, that in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Not that he did wrong, but that he did right. You see, sometimes people say, well, what I did was right. But see, they are, they're their own judgment. God does not judge you by other people's standards. You say, well, I'm better than that person. I'm better than all the hypocrites up there at their church. God doesn't judge you by other people. You are judged by the standards of Jesus Christ and how or not you measure up to the Lord's requirements and standards. And there's not a single person in this world. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to what God expects us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I like to read the comic pages. And this morning, one of the things I did as I was eating my breakfast, I looked at the, I looked at the comic section. One of my favorite cartoons is... Uh, uh, What's his name? Hagar the Horrible. I read one cartoon of him one time when, when Hagar went to the librarian and asked him to trace his family tree to see where he came from. And so the cartoon strip was, was giving, uh, showing the librarian giving a report about uh, his search of his family tree and where he came from. And he said, uh, what I discovered was interesting fascinating and amazing. And I've traced your clan back to the earliest days of Scandinavian history. And there at the very base 
of your family tree. And Hagar says, what, what, what'd you find? And the librarian said, root rot. <laughs> root rot. Every person born into this world is born with a sinful nature. I've told you time and time again, you don't teach a child to do wrong. You have to teach a child to do right. And uh, children just naturally, you naturally lean toward doing what's wrong. That's your nature. And so it needs to be changed. And that's what grace and redemption is all about. God sending Jesus into the world. Now notice that brings us to the second idea. Not on the requirement for God's righteousness, but the revelation of God's righteousness. We're still in chapter 3. This time look at verse 21. Romans 3, 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now the word manifested means to be revealed, to be uncovered. And so God has uh, revealed to us and uncovered for us the answer to our unrighteousness, the solution for our sin problem. And it is in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the righteousness of God. And notice several things about that. He, he uses the term manifested. He says, for now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Well, it has been manifested or revealed to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a clear manifestation. It is brought to light. Christ is the light of the world. As the light of the world, he shines upon us to show us our unrighteousness and also to show his righteousness that becomes ours when we are born again. It is a personal manifestation. It was in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and it is a complete manifestation. There will not be any future revelations. Hebrews chapter one in the first three verses reminds us that in times past, God revealed himself and spoke to us through the prophets and in the law, but in these last days has revealed to us himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the full and complete and final revelation of God and from God. He is God and there are no other revelations and there will be no other provision for our salvation than what God has provided for us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you trust Christ as your savior, he performs a miracle of transferring the righteousness of the Lord into your life. So that when the Lord looks at you, he does not see your unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that it has been attested to and confirmed through the law and through the prophets. You remember when Jesus was raised from the dead and recorded in Luke chapter 24 when he was walking on the road to Emmaus, talking to the disciples who were returning to their homes. He says that he began with Moses and the laws and the prophets and explained to them the verses that pertained to him. So the law does not save you. Someone has said when God gave the law, he also gave the lamb because he knew that no one could be saved by the keeping of the law. Because you see, if you break one of the Ten Commandments or any of the laws of God, it's just like the links of a chain. How many links in a chain have to be broken to render the chain in, you know, without any strength and being of help? No, you, one link, that's all. 
You break one link, you've ruined the chain. How many laws do you have to break in order to be a sinner? Just one. That's all, just one. But evil lust, a lie, you, you, you deceive somebody, you, you steal something, you murder somebody, commit adultery, uh, blaspheme the Lord, you know, whatever it is. Doesn't take, you don't have to be a great big sinner to sin. We all sin. And so uh, the Lord uh, reveals our uh, solution to our sin in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 10, 43 says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. So all of the prophets of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a testimony. This is the Jesus book. This entire book is the Jesus book. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. Every bit of it. And so someone has said the Old Testament is the flower in bud form. The New Testament is the flower in full bloom. So everything in the Old Testament, especially regarding the, the, the sacrifices uh, and the offerings that were given on behalf of the people for their sins, all point to that ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So the revelation of God's righteousness is in the person of his righteous son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the recipient of it, the recipient of it. Go back to Romans chapter 3, look at verse 22. Romans 3, 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, no distinction, no exemptions, no, no person, well, that person is qualified, but the others are not. Every single person, he says. How do you become righteous? How do you receive the righteousness that meets the requirements of the Lord and satisfies the Lord? He says it. It's through faith. Look at it, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And, of course, the word believe means more than just an intellectual acknowledgement. I can believe in, you know, a lot of the devil believes in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. They, they cringe and, and shake and tremble in, in the very thought of the Lord Jesus. And James tells us if you say that you believe in, in Jesus or believe in God, you're not doing any more than what the demons do. So there's got to be more than just an intellectual acknowledgement. The word believe here means commitment. If you really believe in someone, believe in something, then you, you're committed to that something or to that someone. So to believe in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus means that you commit yourself to him. That you just, you just fall upon and depend upon the Lord Jesus and his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness and his sacrificial death on the cross for your salvation. And it comes to you through faith when you believe in him. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God lest anyone should boast. We can't boast on how good we are. To be saved? No. It all comes as a gift from God to those who will believe. He made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So trust the Lord. And here's the final thing, and that is the results of God's forgive, uh, righteousness. Two things, redemption from sin and protection from Satan. Look at Romans 3, 24. Romans 3.24 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So bear with me for just a moment as I just set up a camp here and, and talk for a moment about justification. 
Justification is what God does for you when you trust Jesus as your Savior. And I've told you before, the easy way for you to remember the meaning of the word justification is that you break it up in syllables and repronounce it. To be justified means that God, the moment you trust His Son as your Savior, begins to treat you just as if you had never sinned. That's what justification means. It's not a process. There are no degrees of justification where one person is more justified than another. It is an act of God that is free and of grace where God does not make you justified. He declares you to be justified. He says, you are justified. And from the moment you trust Christ, he begins to treat you just as if you had never sinned. Now, the word sanctification is another big word that simply means the process of maturity that takes place from the time that you are justified until the time that you die and go to heaven. So you are justified as an act given to you and pronounced by the Lord that you are now justified in Jesus, you begin to live a life of sanctification, which means the word sanctified means to set apart. So as a Christian, you're no longer, you're in the world, but you're not a part of the world. You don't live like the rest of the world. You go against the current. Uh, uh, you, you're just not a part of the world anymore that is, is God forsaken. You are part of God's family. And the closer you get to the Lord and the more that you surrender yourself to Him in that process of, of sanctification, the more holy you are. But we never reach perfection. We never will other than in Jesus Christ. So you're justified. Then you begin a process of sanctification. And then when you die, you go to heaven. And that completes your salvation. It's called glorification. Glorification. One of these days, you, you're going to die. Your body's in the ground. And although you're in heaven... There's still one other part about your salvation that won't take place until Jesus comes back and that's the resurrection of your body and you get a transformed body, a glorified body just like the Lord's. So you're justified and you're sanctified. Someday you're going to be glorified when you stand in the presence of the Lord. And it all comes about by the grace of the Lord Jesus himself. And God pronounces you justified. And it's not something that you can do, not something man does. It's something that God does, and it's a free gift that comes from him by grace. And then the final thing, not only are we redeemed from sin, but we are protected from Satan. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. In Ephesians chapter 6, what does he say? He says it two times, maybe three times. He says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God. That, so that you will be able to stand firm and uh, against the schemes of the devil. And he says, our, and then verse 13, he says it again. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist, resist the devil in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So the Lord gives you the victory over the devil when you are protected by the breastplate of righteousness. One final verse of scripture in the book of Proverbs, and I'll be through. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 23 through 27. Proverbs 4, 23 through 27. 
Solomon, who wrote most of the book of Proverbs, assuming that he wrote this passage as well, says in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Now the heart that he's talking about here is not the muscle in your body that pumps the blood. The word heart is used in reference to the inner being, what you really are. The core of your being is called the heart. And he says, watch over your heart because out of it flows all of the, the springs of life, what you do, what you say, where you go. And all of these things come out of your heart, out of your innermost being. He says, watch over it. Guard it with all diligence. That means put all your effort into protecting your heart. And how do you protect your heart? Well, Paul said, put on the armor of God. That breastplate of righteousness will protect your heart. Then notice in verse 24, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left, but turn your foot from evil. So Solomon is just talking about the very things that Paul mentions here and not only in Ephesians 6, but in Romans 3. Watch your eyes. Watch your feet. Let, let God control your feet so that he'll direct you. Don't go to places you shouldn't go to. Uh, don't do things that you shouldn't do that are in the eyes of the Lord unacceptable and evil and sinful. You keep your eyes straight on Jesus and you keep your feet walking in his paths and you protect your heart and use the breastplate of righteousness that the Lord has provided for you in the person of Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. May we bow together, please. Father, we thank you for the righteousness that Jesus is and for you through the power of the Holy Spirit putting his righteousness into us so that when you look upon our hearts, you don't see our unrighteousness, but you see the righteousness of your precious son, the Lord Jesus, who demonstrated on the cross your great love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making it a reality in our being. Guide us, protect us from the evil one. May that be our daily commitment to you as we put on the full armor of God. And now as we come to this time of invitation, we know that the devil is here. And we know that he's throwing the fiery darts of temptation and doubt and deception our way. And there will be many who are on the verge of decision who would listen to the devil rather than to you and would submit to his deceptive ways. But, oh, Holy Spirit of God, block that from their minds and from their hearts and help them to focus their full attention upon Jesus. And if they've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, may this be the time that they make a full surrender and a full commitment of themselves that they might receive the righteousness that is pleasing and acceptable unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you stand with me, please? And if God is leading you to make a decision today, please come.